0: Yes, if you would, please stand with me for a reading of the Word of God. Today's passage will be on page 493 of the Bibles that are on the back of each and every one of those chairs. If you do not have a Bible at home, those are our gift to you. Please feel free to take one. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. These are the words of God himself.
1: Let's prepare our hearts to hear by prayer. Father, we come to you again and we ask you, Lord, to... Have mercy on us as we sit and stand before your word. And, and God long to hear with more than natural ears, Lord. We long to hear your word, your call that comes through your word with spiritual ears. Christ, your constant refrain was, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And God, we pray for something we do not naturally have, and that is ears to hear. And so God, just open our spiritual senses to receive your word, to feast on it as the bread that it is, to be refreshed and nourished, challenged and changed by the power of your word. And God, I ask, as I always do for myself, that you would allow me to be a faithful messenger of these Timeless, eternal words, God. That 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 the filter that they go through, the filter of me, Lord God, would not do damage or injustice or injury to Your Word, Lord. And so, God, I I need Your help. And so I, I stand here awaiting Your help, knowing that You're faithful to provide it. And Lord, I just thank You for the message that You have contained for us in Your in Your Holy Word. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. We, we've been looking uh, in this series that we've started in February in the book of Mark. We've been looking at Jesus and his ministry. And you may have noticed that in the last few weeks, the ministry of Jesus has taken a noticeable turn, that things are changing with Jesus. The first part of the book of Mark had Jesus performing many miracles, mostly around Galilee and and uh you would see just all kinds of, of uh results of his ministry with healings and but Jesus always kept returning to the message of the kingdom. He was more interested in preaching than doing miracles. Now he was intent on doing miracles because they pointed to the kingdom. But now we're seeing this time where he is in many different ways revealing himself for the, for the true essence of who he is, the Messiah, the one who has come to change everything. And so the last few weeks have taken place. The, the setting for these passages that we've looked at in the last few weeks has been the, the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is far in the northeast of, of the region of Israel of the time. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, the highest peak in the area. And and you'll remember that it was there at Caesarea Philippi that Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus told him that he did not know that on his own, but the flesh, flesh and blood didn't figure that out, but that the, the Father had revealed it to him. And after that confession, Jesus told the disciples that he would suffer at the hands of the Jews, that he would be killed as a result of that suffering, and yet on the third day that he would rise again you remember that on those words, Peter rebuked Jesus, which was a pretty incredibly bold thing to do, wouldn't you agree? He rebuked Jesus, and, and and when he rebuked Jesus, Christ rebuked him and told him and all the disciples, the crowd that was gathered, that that denying themselves and taking up their cross was the non-negotiable prerequisite for following Christ. You cannot follow Christ. Without denying yourself, without taking up the same cross that he's taking up, following him where he's going, um, which is to death. And Six days later, after that, you'll remember that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of of Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration, where his glory was unveiled completely unveiled before their watching eyes. And descending the mountain, he again made reference to his impending death and resurrection. And still, the three disciples with him clearly did not understand the meaning of his words. And now that you're all caught up, our text today sees Jesus and his disciples turning to the southwest. And they're returning to the shores of Galilee, where it all began. The story that Mark tells us all began. But what you must understand is this is not their final destination. Everything has changed. And now Jesus is intentionally making his way to Jerusalem, where all that he has foretold will be played out in blood red color before the eyewitness of his disciples. And Jesus... The text tells us kept his departure and his destination secret because he was still teaching his disciples. Now, as we mentioned, when the crowd sought only miracles, Jesus always returned to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And consequently, when he did that, he was pointing to the root purpose behind all the mighty works, the healings, the deliverances, etc., etc., that he had done. But now, Jesus is determined to teach these future apostles about the high cost of following him. They still don't get it. But thank goodness, and thank goodness for your life, and thank goodness for my life as well, that Jesus is patient and undeterred. Can someone say amen to that? In our text today, the disciples are going to learn that in his humility, Christ is exalted. See, what we talked about in the catechism today wasn't two different things. They were two sides of the same coin. Christ's humiliation leads to his exaltation. It is by the cross that Christ is exalted. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that because Christ obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. And not only that, it's not only that in his humility Christ is exalted, but it is his humility that identifies his 12 disciples as well as all other uh, uh, followers of him. It, the, it's the humility that identifies those people, you and I, with him. So we want to carefully take notice of three things in this passage if you're taking notes. First, we're going to look at the contrast of Christ's humility to the pride of the disciples. Then we're going to look at Christ's illustration of what true humility looks like. And lastly, we're going to talk about the humility that is required in the church in order to maintain unity, which pleases the Lord. So we begin this text with Jesus repeating much the same revelation that he, in, in, in much the same words that he used in Mark 8.31. It reads this, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. Now this is the, the, the sum total of the main lesson that he has separated himself from the crowds to teach the disciples. He said these things to them one chapter earlier, but we will see shortly that the lesson had to be repeated. Why? Because they still didn't get it. Now, this is a safe place. Let's make confession with one another. How many of you have ever had to have Jesus return to the same lesson he has been trying to teach you? Raise your hand. I thought there might be a few of you. They didn't understand it. And more than that, they hadn't yet accepted it. In fact, if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Transfiguration, as they descended the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told Peter, James, and John, were, in the, in the words of the text, were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The idea of death, regardless of a predicted resurrection, was absolutely puzzling to them. They'd been taught that Messiah would conquer not suffer that he would not be rejected, that he would not die, he would rule, but Jesus knew that this truth was of particular importance for these men. why? Because they would be tasked with proclaiming both his death and resurrection after he ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, when you look at jesus 's words, did you notice the word play that Jesus used? He says the son of man, we've talked about this, that's the, the one who in the book of Daniel stands in unimpeachable glory before the throne of Yahweh, the ancient of days. And this this is the man who will be delivered into the hands of men. The son of man into the hands of men. They didn't understand, the disciples didn't understand this cryptic, message, this cryptic promise of his rising from the dead. So they certainly missed the more important question. Can you imagine what the more important question could be? Is this. If he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, who exactly is it that's doing the delivering? Who is delivering the Son of Man into the hands of men? R.C. Sproul points out, that the New King James Version, if any of you are reading that today, it's, great, it's a great translation, I have no problem with it, but he said that here, in this text, it makes a poor translation choice. So if you're using it today, you can look at it, and it says that the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. And R.C. Sprouls points out that that is a poor translation. It, it uses betrayed instead of delivered. Now, why would I say that that's a poor translation? Because it's true... If you know the rest of the story that Jesus was betrayed, wasn't he? But it wasn't, this is what you gotta see. It was not Judas that was ultimately responsible for the death of Christ. Nor was it the jealousy of the Jewish nation. Nor was it the hostility of the Roman nation. Jesus was delivered up By God. Don't believe me? Let's take the words of the Apostle Peter from the first gospel sermon ever preached in Acts 2.23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. This is also the the testimony of the Old Testament. Isaiah said, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. He he didn't say it was Judas or the Jews or the Romans. The Lord had done it. The Father, though, the reason that that word doesn't work in that, in that translation is because, do you think the Father betrayed Jesus? No way. Je, the Father didn't betray Christ into the hands of men. That would be an unjust act. And it's impossible for God to act unjustly. See, what's happening here is that the Father from all eternity, had a plan to redeem sinful men and women. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus joyfully and obediently submitted to that plan. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? But then we hear what we've seen before, that in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Perhaps... The disciples understood the raw, bare meaning of Christ's words. They understood what death was. They understood what rising meant. But they couldn't understand how this unthinkable thing could ever take place. And let alone, if it did take place, how it could be for anyone's benefit. They may have even remembered how that when Peter once suggested that that could never happen to Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked him sharply, called him Satan. And so they were just going to... Be on the safe side and keep silent. Not ask questions. When they finally reached Capernaum, where they were headed, they came to the house that belonged probably to either Peter or Jesus himself. And, and Jesus, interestingly enough, has a question for them. Now, what, what do we just see? They wouldn't ask Jesus a question, but Jesus has a question for them. These men had been too afraid to ask Jesus about the meaning of his words. But Jesus doesn't ask them a question because he's seeking information. He doesn't need to find anything out. He wants to expose something in their hearts and create an opportunity for them to go further and go deeper into his truth. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ asked 307 questions. I'm going to go over all of them with you right now. Just kidding. Now, there's a couple of main categories of questions that Jesus asks. Sometimes those questions can simply be rhetorical. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Jesus was asking that question with an implied answer already in place. It was a rhetorical question. But but his questions also can be very deeply probing at times. Who do you Say that I am. But the, but one thing about Jesus' questions, that's probably not true of all of us, they are never meaningless. They are never merely to, to stir up theological or academic speculation. They always have a meaning, a purpose, a point. And the question that he asks the twelve falls in that second category. It's so probing that they shrink back in shame rather than answer the question. And this is the question. Hey fellas, what were you discussing on the way? The reason for their shame is that after Jesus had told them for the second time, how he would suffer, how he would be killed, how he'd be rejected, and how he would rise on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the will of God. What were they doing? They were jockeying for position. They were disputing about which one among them was the greatest, which one was the most significant disciple. Probably flashing their resumes to each other to see who had the the most credibility to be the greatest disciple. And this shows clearly how deeply they've misunderstood not only Christ's words concerning Himself, but the implication of His words for everyone who would follow Him. The reason that they cannot understand this talk of death, this talk of resurrection, is because they're still fighting for the corner office. They're still fighting for the key to the executive washroom. While they demanded recognition... Jesus is unwavering in his forward progress to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross. Do you see the sharp contrast between the humility of Jesus and the pride of his disciples? See, they thought about who was the greatest, but if they had understood for just a second who it was that was standing right in the midst of them, what the mission was that he was embracing, the one that he had plainly laid out for them, that he was going to suffer, die, and be raised, they would have had the answer to their question, who is the greatest? Because I'm telling you, Jesus was the greatest. But he was giving the twelve a pattern of conduct, not just for these twelve, but for everyone in his kingdom. These men had grown up, in an honor-shame culture. If we had people here today from Africa or the Middle East, we would we would see this, and they could give us great testimony of this, that they lived in an honor-shame culture, which means that honor among their peers was a thing to be absolutely pursued, while shame and humiliation was to be avoided at all costs. And what Jesus does is he takes that whole economy of honor and shame of their society and turns it upside down. With these words. If anyone would be first of all. He must be last of all. And the servant of all. This is the definition of greatness. In the kingdom of God. See Jesus. Don't overinterpret this. Jesus was not saying that. The apostles would just be run of the mill guys. He. He wasn't denying that they would be very significant in the order of the church he was establishing. Ephesians even tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those who were taught under his authority. But what he is saying is that their leadership would not be defined by regal opulence. This is why the, the, the idea of the Roman Catholic Church with a pope dripping in gold is so offensive to God. Because this is not what He said. Their leadership wouldn't be defined by regal opulence. It wouldn't even be defined by their talents, or their skills, or the worship that men were willing to lavish upon them. Their greatness, their, their worth, their leadership would be defined by the sacrificial service The sacrifice of their lives for other people. And Jesus isn't telling them to lead by getting in the back of the line. He's not telling them to lead by following anyone but Him. What He's saying is that they must be last. When He says that, He's telling them to follow Him by serving like Him. This is what He's trying to tell them. And so sitting down... With the twelve, which is the posture of a rabbi who has consequential things to convey, he gives the disciples a beautiful illustration of true humility. Verse 36. And he took a child. He took a child. I'm repeating that because I really want you to see this in your mind's eye. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, why does that matter? Why do I want you to focus on this idea of a child? Because what you gotta understand is the culture of the first century is much different than the culture of the 21st century. They had incredibly high infant mortality rates. And for this reason, the ancient world often took a less enthusiastic view of children than we do today. Now, I'm not suggesting that ancient mothers and fathers love their children less than we love them today. What I am saying is the culture at large was more reserved because there was a high possibility every time you had a child is that that child would not survive. So after burying and expecting to bury many children, a child wasn't regarded as having much value in the society until people were fairly certain that that child would survive to reach maturity and become productive by helping with the family business, the family farm. And so for Jesus to take a child and say, this is what my kingdom looks like, that was revolutionary. He embraces the child. That's what it means when he takes him in his arms. And I want you to know something. You may be picturing right now an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old. That is not what the scripture is saying. The Greek word is "paidon," and it means an infant or a toddler. This is a little guy. And he demonstrates, by taking it in his arms, that the child has value. Christ refuses to go along with the culture And assess the child by its usefulness. Some of you ought to be falling out right now. Because you worry about, you know, your lack of gifts, your lack of talents, your lack of notoriety, your lack of status in the body of Christ. And I'm telling you that Christ regards those who seem to have no usefulness. He loves them. And so he didn't look at the child by its usefulness. He takes it up out of love. Just because, just because it's his. He, he takes it and loves it. He's showing the disciples how to treat others in his name. That we should not be regarding status and position. We should love people just because Christ created them. Because they are the imago Dei, the image of God. But, but don't, stuck, don't, don't get your boat stuck there. I want you to see this. His words have a deeper meaning. He is telling the disciples, holding this little child, He's telling them to shun status, to shun honor, to shun power, and to become as humble and harmless as little children themselves. The parallel... To this story in Matthew 18 says this so clearly. Jesus tells the disciples in the same moment. He says, truly I say unto you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As the disciples live... With such childlike humility, he promises that those who receive them in his name, which means for his sake in obedience to him, will by extension not just be receiving Christ himself, but also be receiving the Father who sent him. What, think about what this is saying. The result of serving and receiving our childlike brothers and sisters is nothing less than the pathway to fellowship with the Godhead. When we serve each other, when we receive each other, we are actually opening ourselves up to fellowship with Christ and the Father. And we see the same principle in Matthew 25. Do you, you remember Matthew 25? Jesus, in the last moment of human history, separates the nations before him. As, as a shepherd separates sheep and goats, he puts the goats on his left side, the, the sheep on his right side. And he says to those on his right, who had served faithfully, he says, I tell you, I say to you, that as you did it, all these acts of service, to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. He's saying the same thing. Those who receive you, receive me. Now, almost out of nowhere, almost out of nowhere, Jesus is on this track, talking about the need for us to humble ourselves, and become like children. Uh, Amidst all this talk, of Jesus' own humility and the humility that his followers must embrace to lead in the kingdom, John, the brother of James, remember the two sons of thunder? He steps up to Jesus and tells them that they have encountered a man who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But they made an attempt to stop him, to shut that mess down because these this guy was not a part of the twelve. How dare he? Perhaps John thought that the name of Jesus couldn't be called on in deliverance without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Apparently, this unnamed exorcist was a follower of Christ. He wasn't some unbeliever doing this. He he, he just wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the disciples. And John, take note of this. John did not say to Jesus, we we encountered a man who was trying to cast out demons in your name. Nope. He says, we saw a man who was casting out demons in your name. Now, Now, I don't know if you were here last week for Gabriel's sermon. He did such a great job on. But what happened last week in the story when the disciples tried to cast out a demon? Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. They had to require Jesus' help. But this guy is casting out demons. This this protest by John seems absurd when you consider the impotence, the impotence of all the twelve to cast out the demon out of the boy at the foot of the mountain. It's ridiculous. What John was upset about was that this guy wasn't a card-carrying member of their tribe. He didn't like that this guy was doing acts in the name of Jesus, and he wasn't part of the inner circle. He thought that the benefits of Christ's power should be limited to them and them alone. My question to you is, can we see anything of ourselves in John's protest? We had some guys over at the house the other night, and Josh mentioned a... Uh, Story told by Emo Phillips, which I'd like to share with you right now. Emo says, Once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, Don't do it! And he said, Nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you do you believe in God? And he said, I do. And I said, Are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. And I said, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? I said, I'm Protestant. He said, me too. What, what franchise? And he said, Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Are, are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And he said, he said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Uh, Northern, conservative, Baptist, Great Lakes region or Northern, Conservative, Baptist, Eastern region? And he said, Northern, conservative, Baptist, Great Lakes region. He said, Me too! He said, Are you Northern, Conservative, Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879 or Northern, Conservative, Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912? And he said, Northern, Conservative, Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912. And I said, Die, heretic and kick them off the bridge. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus wanted them to know that any mighty work from a miracle of healing to the effectual proclamation of the gospel is not the result of any inherent power in any man, but it is an outpouring of the grace of God. And furthermore, he wanted them to know that everyone may not know what we know. And they may not interpret everything exactly exactly the way we interpret it. But if their allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, his word, and his gospel, we can be, no, let me say, we must be united. We must be. See, our best work for the kingdom is done when we focus on the task that God has assigned to us. Where God has assigned us to work with the tools and the talents He's granted us, and we leave the judging of each man's work of the final day to God alone. Thus, Jesus is highlighting for us, He's highlighting for His twelve disciples, that humility is required in His church in order to maintain unity. If we think that we're the only show in town, or that we're the only church that has finally got the truth then we will do more damage to the cause of Christ than we will ever do good this however this is an important warning pay attention to this this is not a blanket approval by Jesus on uh, on the part of on the part of Jesus for every view that claims to be somehow Christian there are some views that claim to be Christian, use a lot of Christian words, even the name of Jesus itself, that are decidedly non-Christian. To proclaim, uh, Jesus spoke of whoever is not against us, and to proclaim what is contrary to the gospel is to be against Christ and his kingdom. Remember that the same Jesus who here says, the one who is not against us is for us, also said in Matthew twelve thirty, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The point is that there is no such thing. There is no such thing as neutral ground on this planet. You may think that you can take Jesus or leave him. You have no real opinion of him. But what you need to know is that in taking that posture, you are decidedly against Jesus. And no matter what comfort you enjoy right now in this life, it will not turn out well for you. Take your stand, choose your side, and follow Christ as your Lord, the one in charge, the boss. Either you're with Christ or you are by necessity against Him. And we stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are for Him. Amen? But we exhort, we admonish, we persuade, we correct, and we pray for those who are not with him. And we examine ourselves daily to know where we ourselves stand. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because, gives you a cup of water rather, to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's not just highly visible things like preaching up here or being a missionary or performing mighty miracles that draws the heart and the reward of Christ. It's those thousand little things that no one ever sees that will get you no applause that won't up your stock in any church. It's a kind word at exactly the right time. It's an intercessory prayer uttered in private that no one ever sees. It's a financial gift to those who are serving on the mission's front lines. Next week, we're taking our quarterly missions offering. I think we're still about $1,500 or something short. And man, I hope you'll all participate in that. And remember this message that, that it's the little things that God is watching, God is seeing, and God is God says they will by no means lose their reward. He blesses us through these little things. Sometimes it's just treating children like valued members of God's family. Or any other act of sacrifice... For the cause of his great name and the cause of his mighty kingdom, may you and I reflect on the humility of our Savior and may we reject applause to receive rewards that will never, ever perish. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that You laid out in Your Son Jesus the perfect example for us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before Him. So God, there are many Various different kinds of crosses to be borne by your people here at Northridge, God. And I pray that we would look to you who without flinching, without turning, without shrinking back, marched headlong into the jaws of death in Jerusalem, God. And you did it for love and you did it for redemption's sake. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be imitators of Christ the Lord, that we would lay ourselves down, that we would humble our pride, that we would esteem others as better and more honorable than ourselves, Lord. That we would live to serve and not serve to be seen so that we might be welcomed into your kingdom on that final day with those most precious of words, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you for all of this. Thank you for your work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Assistants come and join us up the front. I love this part of our service where we gather at the Lord's table and renew our covenant. It's the great symbol of Christ's humility and the great reminder of his exaltation that he submitted to death on a cross and because he did, you and I can share in his glory. And so we we are grateful and um I, I always like to say this that I can't tell you how serious I am that if if you're here and you have not made Christ Lord, and you are not sure where you stand with Christ, just stay in your seat. We're we're we, we have no intention to re- withhold something from you. But the Bible clearly tells us in First Corinthians chapter 11 that those who drink this cup and eat of this bread unworthily eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And we don't want to be a party to your condemnation. But if you're here this morning and you're unsure, we would love to talk to you. Gabriel would love to talk to you. Pastor David would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you and help you resolve whatever is holding you back from just thrusting yourself into the, into the arms of Christ and being His and letting Him be your Lord. Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Actually, I guess you guys should come take elements first. Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about uh, the setup. So you guys come and receive your elements and then we will read this passage. (laughs) Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And said, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood, my blood, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you and in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup together. Now let's with one voice give thanks to the Lord for his unspeakable gift. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your atoning death, your cleansing blood. God, we thank you. Lord, we are... So full of ourselves, so filled with pride. And yet, Lord, you stood before us, humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to let us be partakers of your humility. That we could fellowship in your sufferings and also know the power of your resurrection. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you. And all we ask is, Lord, be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you in the name of the father in the name of the son in the name of the holy spirit amen you're dismissed